How are you doing, James? I'm doing well. How about both of you? Three. All right. Doing okay. <laughs> I'm getting uh, I'm getting COVID tested today, so I have to leave here at about 5:05. So I'm gonna just duck out at some point, and I'll, I'll wave to everybody. Is your first time getting the test? Uh, my second time. So I was uh, working for my school as a, a food delivery. Mm-hmm. And so the first time I went and um, somebody that I work with in the food delivery got tested positive. Mm-hmm. So I got to see what's going on. Sorry, it sucks. Yeah, I guess it's part of the times. Yeah. Hey, Pedro. Nice to see hey. you again. Hello. Um, I know we're still waiting on, I think, potentially two more people, but I'm just going to start. And if they come in, they'll come in. If they don't, then, you know, <laughs> it is what it is for now. Uh, so thank you all to for joining us. Uh, welcome to We Make the Pod by Talking. Um, we're available on Spotify and SoundCloud. And if you guys got any questions, feel free to email us at wemakethepodbytalking at gmail.com. And this is uh, one of your hosts, Takashi. And uh, we have a special guest. We have two special guests today, and I have the, my co-host Daniel here with me. And I don't know if you all want to just uh, go ahead and introduce yourself and just tell us like anything you want to share with us. I mean, I guess I can start. <laughs> Technically, I haven't started. Uh, Takashi, um, I mean, all of you know me, but just for the listeners, uh, I just try to treat it like it's the first time someone's listening to this. Uh, I'm... A high school teacher. I've been in the process of transitioning into counseling uh, to get my license in MFT. And uh, I've been teaching for the past eight years in LA, mainly in the inner cities of Los Angeles. And yeah, last year I graduated from the same program that James was in, uh, for the MFT program. And I've been trying to look for jobs in that uh, sector. Um, I guess I can go. Uh, my name is Daniel. Um, Takashi and I met in grad school um, when we were both trying to become teachers. So um, I was working in Los Angeles um, between like 2010 and 2015-ish, 16-ish. Um, been an English teacher um, for about a little over 15 years now. Um, and in this particular context, I actually have a psych background. And for a long time, I wanted to possibly become a child clinical psychologist, but then life circumstances took me into education. So uh, that's me. We clicked at the same time. <laughs> Look at that, James. I'm like, what is yeah. that? <laughs> all right. Um, hello, you all. My name is Pedro Gomez. Uh, I am an associate professional clinical counselor, so I'm registered with the DBS. Um, Accumulated my hours to be licensed as a clinical counselor. Uh, I've been <clears throat> doing the therapy aspect of counseling for about three years now. Um, like about four hours shy from meeting um, the hours to, to take the, the exams. Um, my background is in education and mentoring, um, and I serve like throughout South Central, probably Compton, Spot Six, or Area Six. So. Okay, uh, my name is James, uh, James Green, and I am uh, an associate marriage and family therapist. Uh, I went to the same program as Takashi. Um, I am taking my license exam on Tuesday, so we'll see if I'm licensed soon. Um, 
I've been working for the past three years uh, as a school-based uh, violence prevention and mental health counselor at Washington High in uh, LUSD. Um, and uh, also doing some private practice on the side for uh, like queer affirmative groups and folks. Um, that's a, a big part of my experience. I uh, found the program at uh, Cal State LA and jumped into that pretty quickly um, after undergrad. And uh, I'm actually gonna be leaving at the end of this month, at the end of August, to go to Chicago um, to start a PhD program in social work um, at the University of Chicago. Um, and yeah, so it'll be uh, interesting because I'll have uh, dual training as a, as a social worker and as a marriage and family therapist. So um, very much steeped in mental health work. Cool. And thank you to Pedro and James for joining us today. Uh, I guess the first question I had was, how has been your general experiences as a therapist have been? Um, if you want to put it in the context of uh, men of color, uh, you could do that. Uh, but the, I mean, the, the question is going to revolve around that. But I just want to get a general sense of your experience so far. And it sounds like both of you are almost going to be pretty much done with the uh, finishing associate aspect of it. I'm going to start this time. Um, yeah, so I uh, went to that program that was... Uh, mainly school-based when it comes to looking at mental health. Um, so my experience uh, has been only a little in community mental health, which I think most uh, therapists go into uh, straight, out, straight out of grad school. Um, and then uh, doing a little bit of this private practice work in this last year. And I think that's another um, big avenue that a lot of therapists go into either community mental health or private practice. Um, but the bulk of my experience has been in schools, which I think uh, is, is incredibly important because of the mixing of mental health and education. Um, in my experience, that, that's been tricky to navigate because educational systems um, have only re more recently started really integrating mental health into the work that, that they do. Um, so uh, in my experience, especially at, at Washington, um, thankfully we have a, a, a group of, of educators who are um, concerned and um, aware of mental health issues on campus, um, but don't really know the uh, aspects of being a therapist that, that come with, that, with those issues. Um, so it's tricky. A lot of the work that I do is about balancing uh, mental health and education systems. Um, yeah, so that's been a lot of my experience. Also being a, um, a, a person who looks very much like a man. <laughs> I, uh, I identify as non-binary. Um, I use he and him pronouns just because it's easier and I don't want people to feel bad about misgendering, but I also use they and them pronouns. Um, but I mean, I'm a bald dude with, uh, tattoos and a big beard. So I very much look like a, a, what a guy would look like. Um, I think that a lot of folks are, uh, confused at how, uh, at that like level of caring that can come with being a therapist, given the way that I present, the way that I look, 
Um, and I think that that might be pretty common for other men in the mental health field. Uh, so I attended uh, Loyola Marymount University uh, for my graduate work for counseling. Um, and off the get-go, it's like very limited as far as, far as like men and therapy, and specifically uh, men of color. I think uh, in my classes, I was like one of three men in a classroom of like 10, 20 students or so, right? And probably like the only Latino or probably one of two Latinos um, in the classrooms, right? So after I finished my graduate work, I, I went to, I took a role as a Dean of Culture at Charter School where I met Takashi. Um, so I didn't really practice the counseling aspect um, right after graduate work, um, but I did do like interventions when I worked with students, right? Uh, and then when I transitioned to, <clears throat> to mental health, I started with, uh, I did wraparound uh, in service area six. Uh, and there I noticed the continuing to notice that the lack of uh, men as therapists and community-based uh, men of color uh, in my organization, um, I was like the only male out of three therapists uh, from our individual site because our organization was bigger too with different sites. Um, and I think on the other side, there was there wasn't any not therapists, right? So even at the trainings that I would go to, right, the DMH trainings that are provided. Um, they were very limited males, uh, specifically like Latino males. Um, so I, I've been in two like different placements as far as like therapy work. Um, and both places I was like the only man. Uh, so there are many of us, you know, uh, there are many Latinos out there. I think a lot of it has to do with like the, the stigma around mental health, right? Or the, the lack of education. Uh, the the inadequate of just Latinos going into higher education and pursuing higher education and mental health, right? Or just lack of awareness and whatnot, uh, or even else in, in general, right? The, the lack of like men pursuing higher education from inner cities, right? Because I was born and raised here in Los Angeles, right? So I went to public school and um, I was fortunate enough to continue my higher education where my peers didn't, you know? Yeah, before we started this podcast, I was just looking at the data for APA, like the demographics of like the therapists or like the psychology workforce, right? And this could be not just therapists, but also like psychologists who have PhDs or whatnot. And only like about like, I guess about 15% are people of color, the rest are uh, white. And then like, even within the people of color, it was kind of divided evenly almost like 5% Asian, 5% Latino, 5% uh, African-American and then you know there's other and within that uh, there's more women who uh, do this kind of work and uh, the next question I had kind of goes into what you said Pedro um, why do you think there are very few men specifically men of color who go into therapy and what are what are the social stigma and the barriers that prevent uh, men in, going into therapists but also not just as therapists but also as clients too because I, I also don't hear many men going into therapy as clients, so. Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, <clears throat> I think it's very strange 
to hear men or Latino men or just specifically for me being Mexican, right? Being having a Mexican heritage. Um, I didn't know therapy until like way after uh, college, right? And even after that, I didn't start doing my own therapy work until like after college, you know? So I think, <clears throat> the, so it's, it's very complex, you know, there isn't a simple answer to any of these things. Uh, but there's a lot of influences that, that contribute into uh, men receiving therapy, receiving therapy services, or even contributing to providing services, right? Uh, and specifically for like Mexican culture, like, or just men in general, right? We don't talk about our feelings, right? And we know about therapy is therapy is we talk about our feelings, our thoughts, and how we feel and how, what it feels in our bodies. And our, our culture is not designed like that. Yeah, our society has not been designed like that, right? So it's really a counterculture. It takes a paradigm shift to to go into therapy, to, to share with others, like, hey, I'm going to therapy, because it seems as this stigmatized, right? It seems like you're you're crazy, right? And that's what mental health historically has been uh, seen like, right? It's like for crazy people, right? But you know, we all have issues. We all, we all have we all deal with some sort of conflict. Um, problems in our lives that we might need some support from professional services, you know, from, from people who are, uh, who devote their lives to, to listen to others, to, to help them out right? in any way or form. Uh, so, the, so yeah, I think I can, I can go in many different ways. I think the fact that there aren't a lot of men in higher education or just continue to thrive through education and uh, just think of the in inequities of our public system or our educational system right in our system of school school prison pipeline right um i can go in many different directions but i want to i want to hear what y'all want to say too uh yeah i've been thinking about this this question since i uh read through them before um and definitely mirroring what what pedro was saying um I'm Mexican and Black, and that those are two uh, groups of family members that don't feel comfortable talking about emotions, uh, which is really funny because I grew up really sensitive, like too sensitive, and uh, and I went into this work, which I think really fits me well. But I think that traditionally that's not a message that are that is passed down to the men in either of my families. Um, and uh, also thinking about the people who go into the field, um, I think one of the things that I've uh, really recognized is the, like the lack of uh, funding that goes into mental health, uh, which leads to less paying, paying jobs, especially when you look at the amount of education that we have to go through in order to, to become therapists. Um, oftentimes, uh, our salaries are, are comparable to people who may not have had to have a master's. Um, and I think especially looking at uh, men of color um, and this idea of like being a provider and being, being a breadwinner, um, sacrificing that time and that money um, to do a career, even though it's a career that uh, is very worthwhile and um, is, is very helpful to the world and to the community. Uh, it's a sacrifice. And 
it's, I think it's understandable why some folks are like, I, I don't think that I can commit three years of my life to sacrificing this on top of that three to six more years of earning a license, which doesn't guarantee stable pay, stable work. Um, so I think like that, that income inequality is really prevalent in here. Um, and uh, like talking about that, the makeup of the amount of people who are therapists. Um, and I think it's, it's important to recognize that um, often you'll see therapists and social workers who are um, coming from more privileged backgrounds um, or who have more family supports uh, so that they can go through a two to three year degree. Um, and then, and that makes, a, makes up a big part of the workforce which also starts to perpetuate some issues of inequality and, and racism in that. And just like Pedro, I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna speak too much because I can also go on about that for a long time. Um, but yeah, so the, the income inequality, I think is the, the basis that, of that message. Yeah, I was thinking like that could be its own podcast too, <laughs> maybe in the future. Cause yeah, that's like a, yeah, I was thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, that's actually a very loaded question. And, it, it, we can go on like hours and hours with that just talking about that because i was also thinking about uh like the historical aspect of it right particularly to african-americans with like the slavery uh the distrust in the medical system like the tuskegee experiments in tennessee in the 1930s where you know black men were in, injected with syphilis and there were no way to get treatment and it just kind of went on and on and even like the the so-called the founder of the gynecologist uh Marion Sims, like he did like very horrible experiments to black women, like when they were slaves and, you know, just did all these horrible things that created a lot of, you know, animosity and distrust for black Americans to enter the medical field or to get seek support from the doctors. And we're, we're seeing this inequality today uh, institutionally with the COVID, you know, the rise of the COVID cases. Uh, but yeah, I feel like this, that could be its own topic. Uh, Daniel, I don't know if you wanted to ask any questions or wanted to pitch in. Um, you know, I was really curious about, so I think that there's a lot of intersections between education um, and mental health. And um, I think the historical precedents and sort of the context of why there's a, a gender and race um, disparity in the fields of uh, mental health are interesting. But I'm curious to know at present, um, like what's going on on the ground floor? Um, what's going on in um, the issues of mental health, um, particularly say in schools? And what are and how are those problems related to either sort of larger political forces or larger economic forces uh, within the culture? Kind of curious to know what you think about that. Um, I think there's been uh, a recent and heavy push towards trauma-informed care in at, in public education systems, um, which is wonderful. I like. I definitely want to start off saying like that is great, um, and and it it is designed to build a need to look at uh, health disparities and inequalities that can come up that impact education, and, and I think that's wonderful. Um, I also have uh, some criticisms on trauma-informed care as like a um, like a massive uh, 
agenda just because it it's hard to um implement and stay on track of unless everyone has buy-in and that's it's really difficult to improve buy-in for all people um and also uh a lot of issues i and this may be just um my experience but i i think a lot of issues surrounding um like suicidality um increasing levels of of depressive symptoms with with young folks and and anxiety um and and uh what seems sometimes like a like a fear-based response from the school systems to to meet those needs where instead of um coming to it like hey, i understand that you're feeling sad i understand you're feeling anxious um a lot of it i think can sometimes be translated into hey we don't want you to hurt yourself especially because that will make us liable um so let's fix you really quick um so those are the couple things that i that i really recognize I think we're all we're also in like twenty first century, right? So like education has evolved, and I think it is, needs to continually evolve, right? Um, and we know a lot more things that we did in the past, right? We know a lot more about trauma and the effects it has on the brain and learning, right? And we know that if a child, a student is not regulated, they cannot learn, you know. But a lot of it is is the buy-in, like James said. A lot of it is a paradigm shift. It's understanding that. Uh, how trauma affects students, right? And how does mental health affect students? Not just students, but overall staff. Mm-hmm. You know, teachers are really burned out. You know, they're, they're in there trying to provide uh, education, but they're doing more like classroom management. You know what I mean? Um, so there needs to be an uh, understanding of social emotional learning for, for students, for teachers. You know, uh, I think that that's a huge thing that's missing. Um, and we also look at the, the educational system, how historically it's, it was just made to get people into the workforce, right? It was just meant to, you know, an assembly line, right? Uh, and we're talking about people's feelings and thoughts and in a classroom, that's a whole paradigm shift, you know, and if teachers not, don't have the buy-in to actually like take in that pedagogy, it's not gonna work, you know? And we're looking into like, I think as a culture overall, we're moving into a right direction or moving forward as far as like uh, ending the like <clears throat> punishment, right? And like using restorative justice practices, using transformative justice practices, right? To win the industrial, uh, prison industrial complex, right? But all that is business, right? Education is a business, right? right? Prison is a, is, a, is a business, right? So all that, um, there's a lot of politics involved, you know, it's not a simple clean cut thing so um but i think overall it's 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 understanding how can we better ourselves how can we better as a community how can we help our students um and it takes teachers or just school personnel who have a heart and understanding of where the students needs and how are they going to meet those needs right if it's trauma-informed or if it's uh trauma-focused if it's you know you start just practices, right? But every every population is different. Every school is different. You know, we're all in different levels. So uh, it's all about as a school, how are they going to meet the needs of their students? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the reason I asked that question is because I do feel that there's a, a similarity within the cultural spheres of education 
um, as well as the cultural spheres of mental health, particularly, say, psychology and counseling. And one of the things that strikes me over the years, especially as I get older, is that um, in education, the culture of white women uh, dominates the way in which you talk about instruction, the way that you talk about uh, human psychology and behavior. Um, and it comes out for me in sort of this like pan POCism, which is like all these kids of color are the same and they all have trauma. And um, what I get from that is sort of this, we're diagnosing kids of color in schools, in the classrooms, and we're also diagnosing them within this mental health sphere, which I think is starting to take away the dignity of youth. And not only the youth, but the dignity of POC in that way. Everybody is a, is a disease or some kind of disorder, um, as opposed to accepting the, the whole person. Um, and Takashi, that kind of reminds me, you and I, you're in, in a field where you are in the classroom and now you're going to transition. Like, is there any part of you that sort of loathes or is like, I don't know, apprehensive about going into another field that is similar in that way and, and culturally, I guess? Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And I still have the fear of transitioning, just to be honest. <laughs> like, because I, I think I, I think I was so tied to the identity of being a teacher and letting that go is, uh, it's, in a way, it's kind of traumatizing. Uh, but also, like, it, it's a transition that I, it's going to be a process for me if I decide to do it. Because I'm still applying, but haven't really found anything solid. But yeah, you're right. It's like both fields are very similar in that aspect. Because in the therap therapist world, too, it's, I feel like it's dominated by a lot of white women, too. Like in terms of the, the literature, in terms of uh, the treatment, the workshops that I've attended. Um, but I think for me, the reason why I wanted to get more knowledge or skills in counseling was a lot of the issues that I saw in my students wasn't necessarily just academics. Because I didn't go into teaching because I, I love math and I love science. I mean, I do, but you know, I don't love it that much to the point where I'm talking about it all day. <laughs> like the whole purpose for me was to like work with the youth to make sure that their well-being and their needs are being met. Uh, just their social emotional aspect is uh, healthy. Um, just being a, having them to like communicate well with each other. Uh, a lot of these things that I feel like, um, teachers should know but unfortunately we don't really know because <laughs> the program that I was in with James uh I know like some of the classes I was taking and I was just thinking and reflecting like damn I really wish I took this before I taught <laughs> like because this would have been very beneficial like just terms of uh even like we had classes about uh, like attendance we had classes about how to deal with administrators or like you know positive behavior intervention supports uh, dealing with trauma uh i don't know just uh, just like doing these readings uh, engaging with other um, cohorts about these topics really made me reflect that you know these type of skills and knowledge would be beneficial for teachers but at the same time teacher already has so much on their plate kind of like what pedro mentioned like you know we're stressed but it's kind of like what are we exactly prioritizing for the teachers right it's like are we not prioritizing these social emotional skills and knowledge to help out the students rather than like just a lot of academic jargon that goes in with like academic theory um, but yeah I don't know it's like it I feel like it's 
it's like a mix of different worlds, but we're kind of trying to do the same thing. We have like the same goal, but we're just cutting right. from a different lens. Right. Now, all three of you are, have gone through the training or are in the midst of going through the training to become mental health professionals for men of color or just like men generally, like, and, and this is to me as well, like I've thought on several occasions of possibly even going back into into psychology and going into counseling because in the classroom I feel limited, right? I feel like I could teach more in a therapy session and then do, you know, it's kind of like that. What, what can we expect in the training and in the education, um, the costs and like, how do we calculate that financially in our heads? Is this something that's even worth it um, compared to, say, like teaching or whatever else it is? Uh, I mean, I can go since I'm doing that transition from teacher to counselor. And, and you know, James and I talked about this off the pod a couple of weeks ago. Like, yeah, like the salary is definitely lower depending on where you work, especially like the mental health agency. And just the horror stories I hear from like the interns, um, it's like so many cases. Some people have like 20 to 30 cases a week and it just seems like it's impossible. And they just want the numbers met, you know, like certain aspects of DMH. Uh, certain, uh, they just want to make sure uh, certain clients are met and their goals are met uh, just to showcase a non- the numbers for their nonprofit or their community agency. It just seems like a very uh, stressful like environment. And a lot of people are doing that just to get their license. And once they get their license, they just kind of say peace and I'm going to do private practice and maybe work in a more affluent area or um, not necessarily go back to that community health, which is also a very similar narrative to teachers who work in the inner city for a couple of years, especially those in the Teach for America. And then they kind of say bounce. I'm doing something else. I'm, I'm going to go teach in a suburb, more affluent area where I don't have to deal with like, so, you know, the so-called problems they have in the classroom. Like I see a lot of similarities with that, but uh, financially, yeah, like it, if I've been working, you know, I've been working as a teacher for over eight years and certain, there's certain income that I'll have, but if I'm going to go back into a community health mental agency, it's like I'm starting from scratch. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's all tied up, right? So like, Daniel, you were even mentioning how like that diagnosis of like uh, people of color and how trauma has been used um, and how trauma is very individualistic, right? And it's, it's up to the person to actually like say like, yo, like this is very traumatic, right? Because the trauma was a trauma experience can be for me. It's not always going to be for you, right? Um, and at my work or as I've been doing my work with I had to do these assessments, right? And I had to like diagnose people, right? I had to diagnose children. And I was like, man, I had a really hard time diagnosing. Because um, I'm all, I'm looking at the symptoms, right? I'm looking what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong. It's very deficit outlook, right? But we, we also want to be strength-based, you know? Um, and we had to do the assessment in order to bill, in order to get money, right? So, and which contributes to the caseload. Right, because like I was doing wraparound, which is very intense. It all depends on the cases you have and the, the families and the child and how intense they are. Right. Right. Um, at one point, I had like thirteen cases, and it was manageable. At one point, I had eight cases, and it wasn't manageable. Right. Um, and then I transitioned from like wraparound to like school based, and I had like twenty cases during COVID. Right. So you're going back to back to back to back in a week. You know, 
uh, it all depends on like how responsive are are the clients who are the people you know um how intense are they right uh do they need a lot of support do they just like need somebody to listen right and it's draining work you know you're, you're setting aside your yourself to be in a space with somebody else you know and just hold space for them that gets draining you know and that you need to build a capacity for that right so as an intern as an associate as a new fresh out of grad school when you're going into uh community mental health with nonprofit, you know um it can be draining really quick and if you don't have the right support the right supervision or the adequate supervision uh it can be very isolating you know if you don't work with the team like i was fortunate enough to work with a wraparound and have a team around me right so i had a, like a child family specialist that worked with the, the child one-on-one i had a facilitator that dealt with the meetings. I had a, a parent partner that worked that worked with the parents, right? It wasn't just the therapist, right? That's what I loved about the wraparound model, right? About our team effort, about the community, and also knowing that the whole purpose of it is for us, for the team to step out, right? We go in, provide services, create stability within the, the home, um, but also use natural resources the family has, right? But when you're just a therapist, like in the school base, like there isn't, I've seen that there isn't a lot of connection with like families. There can be, but it's ex also extra work, right? You gotta go uh, out of your way to to meet with the families, right? Uh, to meet with the teachers, right? Um, and then it's the same thing with the, with the teachers and the families, they gotta go out of the way to talk to the therapists, right? And there's also the confidentiality aspect of things, right? Um, so it's, there's definitely a capacity building that has to be built, you know, uh, but it's very overwhelming, it's very draining, you know, and overall, I think it's, it's a system is when you talked about how, you know, a lot of folks going to this work, get, get licensed and then do the private practice. You know, I didn't come into this work to, to do that, you know, I came to serve the community to, to help being with with people who are, are dealing with things, but the goal of being licensed, that's always been a goal because that's that's how it's designed to, right? Like if it was up to me and I had to worry about bills or anything like that, like I'll do it for free. But because we live in a society, in a capitalist society that we we have our luxury and our lifestyles, that changes the whole script. Takashi knows this, but I I'm, I can be very critical of the mental health system in the U.S. Um, and I, uh, I very much see like the need, right, of, of community mental health. Um, and I also see how much it's run like a business, um, which creates this level of uh, sacrifice that needs to be made for the people who are doing that work. Um, there's like, because no one that is going to explicitly say this, but there's this implicit message that if you're working there you you are there to sacrifice your time your energy your just right. a lot of your own mental health um and and then there's this message of like and if you're burnt out it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing to protect yourself uh which i think is kind of bs because i think that um yes the amount 
on our caseloads is overwhelming. But that's, I don't think typically the choice of the therapist or the clinician, that's typically the choice of whatever productivity is required of that agency. Um, and I've seen some of the inner workings of, of how that is developed, either through grants or through uh, agreements with, with government. Um, but I don't think that it's like too wild or out there to believe that some nonprofits um, purposely tack on more productivity for more money, especially for, for admin. Um, and when you look at that and then you look at the, the sacrifice, right, that, that implicit sacrifice, it's a tough sell for, for folks who want to go into this work. Um, there are definitely a lot of therapists who are like, I just want to be a private practice therapist. And that's, that's it. Um, which similar to you, Pedro, I, I have had a lot of frustration with that. Um, and I've had to learn how to feel comfortable or more okay with folks who decide to make that their career path because they can still do very amazing community-based work in private practice. It's just, there's a level of privilege in doing that, that that's there. Um, and I, I do very part-time one day a week private practice just to see what it looks like. And it's been great, but I also have like personally have such a hard time um, charging folks. Um, and very similar, like if I wasn't working under someone's license and, and I could control how much I, I charged, I would probably charge way too less or way too little for what, for what I'm doing. And part of it is like, oh, I don't think that my time is like worth that much. Um, but part of it is like, that's the, that's what's expected is to like charge these, especially here in SoCal and especially in, in LA, to charge these rates that people are going to pay for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a long journey of, of rationalizing the reasons why I do this work, the reasons why um, I get the judgments that I have for other clinicians who um, do work that I feel isn't beneficial for the community and the world and, and for folks who um, perpetuate these systems, these like capitalist systems that we're living in. So yeah, it's, and it's still going to be a journey because I'm not done doing this work. Um, and I'm not, I've, I haven't come to like a, like an agreement, like, oh yeah, this, this path is okay. And this path is not okay. Um, it's, yeah, it's just such a complex system to, to work in. Um, that being said, I very much think that for folks who have grown up with um, abuse and who have done their own work, um, they are vital assets to this work, um, specifically just because there's like a level of um, like, I have been hurt and I have, have healed and I can hold space for someone else to do this work. Um, and I think that is very valuable, especially working in schools. Um, it's not like the only requirement, obviously. Um, but I think just in this question of wondering who, who does this work or like, who are the folks to do this work? I think it's, there's that level of, um, that level of healing that is just really helpful. Um, I think that's a really interesting point that you say people who have endured 
some kind of harm that they have overcome provides sort of an empathic response and an empathic sort of approach to doing good work in mental health. Um, I think that there's, there's also something to be said about teachers who haven't done well in school and who have rejected school in some way have this other capacity to reach students of a certain kind of population. Um, do you see or have you heard stories about, um, let's say white women again, I don't wanna bring it back to race, but I definitely do. Um, is there something about the white culture in the United States, in the way they, they approach mental health that commodifies people? And therefore, um, Pedro, you touched on this a little bit, when you're diagnosing folks, when you are pathologizing humans, is there a split between folks who are white and folks who are not? And added on to that, I don't mean to make this too confusing, but for white folks who do not make people into commodities and for white folks who would charge less, what is that different? What is that other piece that people need in order to do that work really well? That, that sort of fascinates me on a teacher level as well as on a psychological level. Um, okay, so immediately you're in your first question, right? Um, a story came, came up of when I was an intern, um, when I was in grad school. Uh, I uh, was working with a woman um, and she uh, was undocumented. She had two kids who were uh, both documented here um, and uh, was in a new relationship with like a, a, a family friend. She had been in the States for years and years. Um, she was starting a new relationship with like a family friend who she decided like, I'm gonna kind of give him a chance. Um, and part of the relationship was this understanding of like, um, hey, I, I don't feel 100% in love with you yet, um, but I'm also recognizing that you feel very much that way for me um, and I'm willing to try and make this work as we start finalizing some of our other um, more like legal documentations and things. Um, so I was sharing, not this part, but I was just sharing about like some of the um, uh, issues in the relationship that she had brought up, brought up in a, a previous session during our group supervision. Um, and I was interning at this uh, agency in, uh, in the OC, uh, very, white centric, but working with a community that was like all Latinx, very brown. Um, and one of the supervisors responded with, uh, in talking about that, uh, that relationship, oh, that's weird. She talked about her, her relationship. Oh, that's not a good relationship. Oh, that's weird. And so I was thinking like, yes, and also this is, this is her normal, like this is, what is normal for her. And then also thinking about um, other stories of, of undocumented folks getting in other relationships of means as a safety issue and as an issue of, of just, yeah, just of safety. And it seemed to really um, go over their heads and they were focusing on this relationship in a very like Eurocentric, a very like white centric way of like, oh, well, if you don't love this person, then why are you in a relationship with them? Um, and it reminded me that folks, especially white folks, um, 
without doing that work of, because we talk about diversity um, and we talk about cultural competency, competency, and I think kind of it's BS sometimes, um, when they don't do that real grounded work in learning about um, how to be like, have, how to have cultural humility, um, they say things like this that perpetuate this stigmatization and this othering, especially of people of color. Um, so yeah, that was the first story that came to mind because it, it just, it always will remind me um, that even well-meaning white women who come into a community and say, I want to help all of those less fortunate of me can still enact like racism. I was thinking of, uh, I mean, this for me, this story is like me as a client. Um, I had this uh, white therapist at a community health agency and she charged me really low. So, you know, that was cool just based on my income and whatnot. But I remember one time uh, she asked me like, oh, you know, it would, be, would it be cool if we do a session where uh, there's like three supervisors will be observing our session? And I didn't really think of it at first. I was just like, sure, why not? You know, if it helps you, you know, it shows really cool. Um, and then I went and it, it kind of she. And we were in this room where it's like those glass windows where you can't see the other side, but they can see you. And uh, it's like three like older white therapists were just kind of coming in, their, you know, nice clothes and sitting down with like a pen and a notebook. And it was like two white men and one white woman. Uh, they were older, definitely. Like had supervision, like supervisors. And we were going through the session and I was just like, damn, this feels weird. I feel like I'm in like an experiment, like, you know, a person of color being experimented by the, the white people, you know, and like, is this really happening? You know, I mean, I just kind of, I was at first like hesitant to like keep talking, but eventually I just kind of let my guard down and just, just talk. Uh, and then after like the session was over, we were able to observe what they were discussing about the session. And, you know, the lights would turn on to the other side and we were able to see them and, you know, we observed it. And I, I don't know, it, for me, like, it felt kind of weird. I was really conflicted. Like, at the same time, it was nice to hear feedback from other therapists, other supervisors based on my uh, circumstances. But it was only one session that they saw and it wasn't like an ongoing session. So I don't know how they processed it. But at the same time, it felt really weird because... Maybe the fact that they were all white therapists made it feel weird. If it had been like a black or other people of color um, therapist, maybe it would have been different or maybe this kind of procedure wouldn't even happen at all, you know, but I don't know. I was just like feeling conflicted and like feeling like, was this really okay? And I didn't feel comfortable addressing that with my therapist, you know, which kind of backfires because in therapy, you're supposed to be able to tell how you feel and what you really feel even even about the session and up to about the therapist too and yeah I, I don't know like for people of color who experience racism if they don't feel comfortable talking about racism to other people of color how, how are you going to expect them to talk to white people you know white therapists about their racial trauma um so i mean i, I don't know if that answers your question daniel but <laughs> that's that's where my mind went in terms of uh like, you know, the white woman therapist or white therapist. Um, like James said, I, I do think um, they need to, like, critically examine, like, their role in white supremacy, like, the power structure. Like, we talk about white privilege a lot, but I, I also have, like, a lot of criticism about that. It's like, we're, we're just examining privilege and not about the white supremacy and, like, the oppression, historical oppression. 
um, you're just kind of making the white people feel good about like, oh yeah, I have privilege and then just move on, right? Like there's no like deeper analysis and historical like digging in into like their own ex psychological examination of, you know, their, of, of their power structure, so. I think in general, just we're different. I think it's, it's different where, you know, people of color or just different cultures, right? We're all different cultures and I think there isn't a right or wrong thing. You know, I think it's just different point of view. Um, but when they start imposing their views on others, uh, that, that hits home for me because, uh, like, I grew up in, in, in here in Los Angeles, right? So um, growing up as a teenager, I had a, I self-diagnosed myself as a, my 16-year-old self as a complex trauma, right? I didn't have PTSD. I was complex. I was in it you know, on a daily basis, you know, I had to walk uh, over my shoulder to, to get to school, I had to carry a knife to get to school, um, you know, just to feel safe, because I wasn't gonna use it to anybody or anything like that, just in it. So when I have all these, all my experiences, and I think about my experiences and, and about trauma, and when I learn about trauma, and going into higher education and going into academics and having white professors, right um all my insecurities come up right and i'm like well who, who do they think i am right i think about my experiences and that's how i see myself right um all my wounds that i have right that i had to heal right um so it was very challenging for me to like say things that i felt were problematic um for example I had a white professor in grad school who talked about, you know, he was a clinical therapist in the community of serving people of color. Um, and he gave the scenario of unit of like, there was a student who witnessed his best friend get shot. So he saw the perpetrator. Should the student tell the cops that? or shooting me. My mind was like, no, don't say anything. You know, you're gonna, the fear of retaliation is goes against the police, right? Or just even, or even the, the, the relationship between the community and the police in, in the inner city, right? Uh, but his push was more like, yeah, he has to tell them. He has, you as a counselor has to, have to promote and have to encourage the student to tell the police. And at that point, I was like, well, okay, like I'm wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to say anything. Like, and then there's this fear of like, if I say something, if I say something that, that goes with what they're saying, then I'm going to be the bad person. And then I go into extremes, right? I go like, it's either really good or it's really bad. So if my really bad is like, I'm not going to be a counselor no more if I say something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like, and as I continue to learn, this is like, what, like five years ago, right? when I was in grad school um, and then just being supervised by a white person or white woman, um, just the pathologies, right? They were, were talking about like diagnosing. Um, at first I was like, I didn't know how to do an assessment. Like you teach me, right? You teach me what you know and I'll just do it how you're telling me. But then I realized like, yo, like this, it didn't, it didn't seem right and it feel right for me. You know, like I was talking to clients about symptoms and diagnosis, and they had no idea what I was talking about. It's a whole different language, it's mm. English language, right? Uh, 
And then I just took it upon myself to like teach them. Like I, I told like, you know, what the symptom, you don't know what the diagnosis, like why do we use symptoms, why do we focus on symptoms, um, and then like what's the diagnosis. And, I, and I, I'll be real with them and be like, yo, like they use diagnosis to, to get money and that's how we get paid for it, provide services. You know, uh, that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. You're just exhibiting some things that affected you, you know, and this is what's causing it. Um, but even with my supervisor, who I had like a couple of years ago, um, it was like walking on eggshells. Yeah. It felt like if I said something, like I was wrong. And every time I presented something, it was like I had to defend my point of view. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't very pleasant, you know? Um, and it was, I don't know, I think I had a follow with that supervisor um, because I cared more about the services than actually like the notes, right? Uh, and you know, about the work of mental health that like a lot of people are behind their notes and that's a real thing, right? Uh, but we also get paid by the notes, right? My priority is the services to the community. That's that's what I go to, right? But I also know that in the back of my mind, like I had to turn this my notes in because that's how they see that I'm doing my work. That's how they, they get money, right? And that's what makes me an ethical counselor and whatnot. In my back of my mind, I'm still saying that's bullshit. <laughs> Fuck these notes. You know what I mean? But I has to at the end of the day, like it's gonna get done. You know what I mean? Um, so I had to follow out with one of my supervisors because I was like behind on my notes. And she was talking about like now using, now counting my hours, my BBS hours because I'm behind on my notes. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm like, okay, like once I turn in my, my notes, am I gonna count the hours? I'm like, no. Like what? <laughs> so I'm being punished for something, you know? Um, but the way I felt like, I know I'm a man. I know I'm Mexican, I'm a heavy dude, I'm a bald dude, you know, so I'm listening like in my mind, like all the things that can go wrong, right? Based on like white society, right? Um, so I knew like any little thing I would say or do is gonna be used against me. And it was, you know, like uh, the way I'm speaking, it was too loud for her. I was like banging on the table for some reason. I never banged on the table. I wasn't even speaking loudly. Um, but she, she, she said that, she mentioned to my other supervisor, right? She was my supervisor, that she felt unsafe and she didn't want to be my supervisor anymore. At that point, I was like, fuck this shit. I feel unsafe now. I feel like anything that I say or do I'm not, is going to be used against me. I feel unsafe, but like, dude, like I'm talking with my other supervisor like two days afterwards. And I'm crying, you know what I mean? Like this is a heavy, bald Mexican guy just talking about how I don't feel safe and I'm crying at work, you know what I mean? And that's how I felt betrayed, you know what I mean? Yeah. I felt like scrutinized, you know what I mean? But I was a bad guy because I raised my voice and I banged the table, which I totally did not bang on the table. I wasn't speaking in a high tone. I wasn't aggressive or anything, um, but she felt like I was. And then she tried to like during that session or during that our interaction with the supervisor, she tried to like 
do like the college bullshit on me, right? About how, like, oh, you're, you're mad. I'm like, I'm not mad. <laughs> I'm just trying to understand, like, why am I being punished for something that I'm going to do, you know? Uh, all in all is, is, is I feel more comfortable with a supervisor of color uh, than somebody who's white. I uh, have very limited working with white people uh, in community base, uh, but my experience that I have had wasn't a positive one. And it was a lot of it was that, you know, you know apologizing, the, the worrying about making them uncomfortable, right, or white fragility, right? Um, and then, yeah, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there.